0: Hello, and welcome back to the Break the Twitch podcast on doing more of what matters through minimalism, habits, and creativity. I am your host, Anthony Ungaro. Joining me in this episode is Jamie Erickson. He is a cool dad, a bike commuter, a rogue creative idea guy, and backyard astrophotographer. In this episode, we discuss how Jamie started a habit of biking thousands of miles per year, how he minimizes distractions and creates stuff, and how we can ultimately learn and grow from our failures. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jamie, and I'm sure that you will too. This podcast is brought to you by the new Break the Twitch member community. The member community is how you can support the work I'm doing with Break the Twitch while getting exclusive access to some of the things that I'm making. Members will get access to monthly live streams, a private online mastermind group, and most importantly, the new audio courses that I'm releasing every month. If my work with Break the Twitch has been helpful to you, I would greatly appreciate your support. To find out more, go to breakthetwitch.com community. Now, let's start the show. bikes here didn't you i did i did did. i I know you're a big cyclist yes yes i am i was gonna say biker (laughs) but i realized that that's might Uh, be interpreted incorrectly my little leg powered hog your leg powered hog yeah um what kind of role does uh (laughs) what kind of role does cycling play in your life
1: uh it's pretty predominant one um it's it's pretty much my only means of transportation outside of the occasional, uh, occasional use of a car. And, uh, now the bird scooter, um, yeah, I've been burdened a little bit recently, but otherwise, um, it's, it's, just, I'd say 99.76% of my,
0: uh, commuting, uh, mode. Was there something that triggered that, or?
1: Yeah, it was a uh, um, it was a a, a very uh, specific moment in time. It was um, I was when I was running my first business. Um, I'm I'm notorious in my life for um, deciding somewhat rashly to do things um, and f- flipping the table, so to speak, on my life. And this was one of those moments where I was. Um, I'd always told myself when I was young, uh, when I was younger and uh, had the metabolism of a young man, uh, I always told myself if I ever got to 200 pounds, then I had to take some serious action in my life. Oh, no. Well, I rocketed past that, you know, because I became an adult and realized, you know, like that's where I was going to be. But I'd gotten to the point now where I was um, I was about 230 pounds um, and I had given myself 30 pounds of leeway on my my goal. And I was driving about two and a quarter miles to my office every day, driving there and driving home. Uh, And that was about all I was doing. And I wasn't happy and I felt like garbage and my back hurt all the time because I was sitting in a chair all the time. And um, I realized that I hated that. um, And I wasn't happy like that I had allowed myself to, that I'd basically allowed myself to not hold myself accountable. And uh, right at the same time, the very same time as fate would have it, Um, We were having a nice fun little cash flow issue at the office and um, I wasn't positive I was going to be able to make payroll. And uh, I was looking at that, uh, give or take uh, payroll size chunk of cash sitting out in the parking lot out there. And uh, I called my buddy who was the uh, sales manager at a uh, dealership and said, what would you give me for this thing? And he told me and I said, cool, I'll be down in an hour. No way. Um, And I sold my car and I bought a bike and I was going to do that for six months until we kind of like figured things out. um, And then I never stopped. But uh, it kind of started as a it was going to be a temporary thing that just really stuck. And uh, at this point, I don't want to let go of um, because I
0: really, really, really enjoy it so yeah how, how long ago was that when that event sort of happened april 1st of 2012 not okay. that i'm counting but Nothing uh I'm it was yet. it was
1: technically march 31st uh and uh, i picked up the bike on april 1st and so there was a little bit of 30 days biking motivation in there so um i had been aware of it uh, and i thought well this is all queuing up to uh, a bunch of universe signs or something like that that younger me uh was paying attention to and um we uh decided that we could ditch the car. Um, I'd called my wife and she said, Yeah, go ahead. We don't need it. We can get by with just one. Um, and so I marched it down to the dealership and took a cab back and uh uh went and picked up the bike the next day and there it was.
0: I'm I'm listening to this book by Ryan Holiday called The Obstacle is the way. And in a sense, it sounds like what started as an obstacle with the business you are running and maybe having some trouble mm-hmm. and you also identifying an opportunity. Yeah. You turned that obstacle into this thing that has become, I would say a large part of your identity. Would you say that? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I would definitely say that. I think, um, it's, it's actually, it's gotten to
1: the point where, uh, people question whether or not everything is okay
0: with me. If I show up, uh, not on a bike somewhere, in a sense, I remember you hitting mile counts Uh and, and it's just fascinating to me that it sort of started out as this like, Hey, let's try this thing. Yep. And then as, as recently as what last year you hit 2000 miles in a year. It's, that was several
1: years ago. Um, time flies. So, guess, right? How yeah. So the first, so after I realized that this was probably going to be a long-term sort of thing, like in that first year. So I started in April. Um, and by May I was like, I'm actually really loving this. And I was finding the long way into the office, all of those sorts of things. I basically set what I thought at the time was an entirely unattainable goal. I'm like, I'm going to ride a thousand miles on my bike this year. I'm going to push myself to do that. What inspired you to do that? I've always been very goal-oriented. Mostly if I don't have some sort of goal, I don't ever always quite get there. And so it's, I'm not sure exactly how to define it, but it's, I I always seem to like to have some sort of goal, some sort of thing I'm trying to achieve. Uh, And so I thought a thousand miles whoa, you know, like no way. And in the middle of August of that year, I hit a thousand miles. Um, and I literally, I stopped what I was doing uh, and pulled into a tattoo shop and got the number 1000 tattooed on the inside of my arm because I realized in that moment that like this, like this whole bike thing wasn't just a temporary like vehicle solution, that it it was a, a fundamental shift in my way of life that um, was incredibly important to me and changed my perspective on a whole lot of things outside of just like, Oh, how do I get to work? It was, I started to see my city differently. I started to see people around me differently. I started to become aware of things that I always thought like, Oh, well that's not really happening. You know, like you hear about stuff and you're like, you know, I don't see that in my little 10 foot radius. So that's not happening. Like I just started to see all these things. And I was like, this is an important shift in my life. And I want to somehow, uh, put that in ink on my arm forever. (laughs) And so it was kind of a big moment um, for me hitting that thousand uh, miles, which isn't looking back, wasn't actually that big of a goal. I thought it was, but uh, I realized it wasn't at all. And the next year I said, I'm going to do 2000 before the end of the calendar year, January to end of the year. Then last year I did 3000 and this year I'm on pace for almost,
0: I'll probably hit 4000 if I keep on the pace I'm at right now having that as a foundational habit like what have you seen have you seen other things spring off of that foundational kind of thing or this like lifestyle choice you've made Mm -hmm. what are some of the things that have affected your you know what i'm saying yeah yeah I jump at the
1: opportunity to throw the kids in our cargo bike and just go bomb around all day and explore the city with them. I mean, you go across the Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis, you know, a thousand times and whatever. It's just kind of a thing and you're constantly dodging wedding parties, taking photos or whatever. (laughs) But then the first time you go across it and your kids are in it and you're... Hypothetically speaking, your almost five-year-old daughter is leaning out the window and it's just a little foggy. And she's like, Dad, it's so magical. I can see the city coming out of the fog. I'm like, this is the coolest thing in my life. That's the best, yeah. I'm seeing the Stone Arch Bridge again for the very first time, like through her enthusiasm. Um, And uh, those sorts of things start to become why i want to ride my bike is because you don't see those when you know the kids are in the back seat of the car because you can't drive across the stonehenge bridge and you can't uh spot a park a block over because you know you're just passing through we'll see that on our bike i will be like oh i see a slide over there dad turn around we go back and we look and we have so much fun it's been fun to rediscover and discover new things um on a semi-regular basis through being on a bike and having my kids with me and all that.
0: This is one of the first contexts that I think I got to know you in, sort of. You were setting up a telescope in your backyard, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what? what got you, how did that start? How does one get interested in that? That's a good question. Um,
1: I, I grew up in the country. I grew up way down in southern rural Minnesota. I grew up about a mile and a half outside of a town of 500 people. Um, and, uh, the stars were just always there, even at a young age, standing at my grandparents house in rural, uh, Southern Minnesota, outside of Rochester, looking up. And I remember, I think I was standing with my dad and my grandpa and my uncle, and they were pointing out the big dipper and then trying to help me find the little dipper because I'd never seen it before. I was probably six or seven or something like that. I'd say 2008, 2009 ish. I remember seeing a retweet of a retweet or something like that of a photo from the international space station that an astronaut had taken. And it it was like clicked something back on in my brain. I was like, Oh yeah, space. Like that's a thing I loved when I was young and what's going on on the space station. And I looked at two thousand nine? Yeah, I think so. I remember looking like going, going down that rabbit hole and seeing, Obviously, I knew there was astronauts up there, um, but I didn't know that they were taking photos of of the Earth and they were taking photos of space from the space station. Um, And so I started getting really interested in that. And I had started kind of um, in 2007, I had gone on a trip to um, Antarctica and I had remembered like all in this moment I had remembered, um, I was looking at these photos of the earth and like the moon rising over the horizon of the earth. And I'd remembered taking a photo of a moon coming up the moon, a moon, the moon <laughs> coming up, um, over some mountains down in Antarctica. And I pulled that out and I looked at it and I was like, this is, I, I know how to take photos. I need, I need to do more of this. I shot a bunch of photos of the super moon, um, that particular year. And, uh, we had posted them on Twitter or whatever, and I remember some some people responding to me and it's like, oh, if you think that's cool, you should look at this. And da, da, da. Um, and I started kind of stumbling down this rabbit hole of um, other, other things to shoot in the sky, other ways to shoot the moon. Because in my brain, it was like, oh, the full moon, that's the coolest. Well, that's when it's just this big, boring, flat disk. Like the coolest time to shoot a moon is when it's like 20% illuminated, because then you've got all these edges of the mountains and shadows through craters and stuff like that. And it's just this little sliver of a thing. And that's actually a really cool time to look and shoot photos of the moon. And so I was trying to do that with my camera. Really wasn't working because I just wasn't really realizing how far away I was from this. Um, the moon, you mean. How yeah, far yeah, away? yeah. <laughs> well, so when you look at it in the sky, you're like, oh, it looks kind of big if I just zoom in with my camera. Right, but right. that's actually like an optical, like illusion sort of thing. It's actually quite a bit smaller when you look through a camera lens. Uh-huh. And when you zoom in, then it's almost as big as what you're seeing with your eye sort of thing. It's just a, a weird optical thing. Yes, and I've so had that experience myself. Like, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, That's
0: disappointing. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Still get out every once in a while and, and shoot photos, but uh, um, really started getting into shooting deep space stuff as well as planets um, and spending all night outside just to get like five usable exposures of the sky because they're like 10 minute long exposures sort of thing. Yeah. Um,
0: and uh, got really into that for a while. That's just such a cool, it, it's something that I always think about in terms of the the stars and it's something that I always come back to. Um, I've talked to my parents about this, or I had this conversation with my parents, where if we ever have a fire in the backyard, like a controlled one, not, right, not right. a- Right, your backyard
1: just starts right. on fire. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, if we ever have a fire in the backyard, or we're camping or something, and it's just crystal clear outside, and, and and you see all these stars, and you're sitting around the fire, that in that moment, you're sort of doing this thing that humans have done, looking at the same stars That humans have seen since the dawn of humanity. Yeah, and there's this something sort of wondrous and magical about that. Yeah, and I can imagine that looking at them closer and having a bit of a a a bigger picture of what is going on up there would be really cool. Yeah, Uh, it's not something that I've had a ton of experience with. So thank you for sharing your uh, your stuff with that. And one thing I know is that your creative work, uh, a lot of what you do for a living has sort of overlapped a bit with your love of sending cameras up very far into the air right yeah yeah so what what have you been working on like recently in terms of career work the kinds of things you're you're doing
1: career work wise um i am uh Let's see. How do I define what I do for a job? It's kind of become this nebulous thing. Um, as a guy who formerly ran a creative agency uh, years ago, um, I've kind of morphed into this position of independent creative strategist, creative idea person that uh, uh, is currently working in a place called Bustout Solutions uh, with a crew to kind of help. Um, find work and identify what it is that we want to do and what we want to make and assemble the team around that and help get those projects up and out the door. Um, and a lot of that, you know, winds up websites, things like that, but is occasionally, you know, miscellaneous marketing sort of things, like that's where I'll bring in my love of space and we'll launch weather balloons with, you know, shoes hanging on the outside yeah. and get pictures of them. They look like they're way up in space and, and things like that. But uh, that's kind of kind of my day job is doing that sort of stuff.
0: Cool, and and uh, from a kind of a background of design, right? Because like I mm-hmm. said, I know that's your T-shirt design. Yep. You've done lots of different ones. Yeah. How many T-shirts have you made?
1: Lifetime, um, a <laughs> lot. Have, um, I've seen a bunch of your stuff. Yeah. And i
0: Own a few of them. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> nice. Um, that's good to know that somebody owns them. Uh, I just kind of sometimes kind of put them put them out there and hope anyone will grab them, but. Uh, No, it's, uh, I used to make shirts when I was young. Like I used to buy, my my parents would give me fabric markers and I'd draw shirts. And uh, I did a lot of that when I was young. And then um, in college, I worked with a lot of bands. And so I was designing, Um, I went to art school and I was a design major and I loved music and was always touring with bands and doing their merch and their websites and filming their shows and all that stuff. Um, It was really... (laughs) It was super not glamorous. Uh, and, I, and I always I always love that part of it because there's always this great perception that, uh, oh man, working with bands, that must have been sweet. And it's like, yeah, get into a fight with a bass player on a dirt road outside of New Orleans <laughs> over like a piece of baloney and that it's 100 degrees. Like, that's awesome. Like, that's, oh, it's so rock and roll, you know? Um, oh, no. But... Uh, uh, that's great. So I used to do stuff for bands and so I did a lot of shirts for bands. And then... Um, I started uh, a dumb little clothing company with my friends in college. We bought a ton of shirts and, like, didn't sell any of them. Um, We sold sold a few. Like, we, we designed some shirts and we got them printed And then they all sat in my apartment in boxes and we had this little website and we maybe sold like 50 shirts out of the like 300 that we bought. And what did you end up doing with the shirts? uh, A lot of them went at a garage sale at my house like a decade ago for, I basically told somebody he could have the whole box for like five bucks. Um, and he was super excited about that and took them all. So you Um, sold
0: 300 shirts actually.
1: Yes, you are right. You are right. We sold every one of those shirts. It's the most successful business I've ever run. And then several years ago, So, um, when Cotton Bureau was first kind of coming on the scene, so to speak, it was probably about a year or so into their run. Um, I, I don't remember how I stumbled across them, but, um, I started putting shirts up on Cotton Bureau, um, and selling some there and done a handful over the
0: years. It's been fun. I know it's, it's challenging for a lot of people. They'll have an idea Mm -hmm. and, just simply not, whether it's a t-shirt or, or something else. I mean, I've been in this place where I have lots of ideas and sometimes you just don't know what step A is right. or B. How do we get to, uh, how do we get to, to Z of it being done? Do you have a process? Uh, sometimes I just start at Z. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, do you have a process to, to go from? Cause right. you're a creative dude. I've seen so much of your stuff and, and. And when it comes up in your brain, Mm -hmm. what next? I think the first, usually the first thing I do
1: is I, I, I hang out at coffee shops. I hang around, I I hang around people a lot. Um, And uh, I, usually the first thing I do is ask the people around me what they think. Um, And, and many of them can attest to this. I have a lot of really dumb ideas. I think, um, Floating all of those ideas, uh, even the ones I know are dumb, um, help me get to a place where I find ones that actually make sense. Um, and they also help me hone in on coming up with better ideas. But um, I usually start by just asking friends, like, hey, what do you think? I kind of use that process a lot. Sometimes I just make things because I want to. Um, uh, you are obviously familiar with the Launch Ladies book that uh, I done last year on um, the little board book Um around uh, the Women of the Space program, Past, Present, and Future. Um, And that came from... I'd literally just made a book for... Well, for my daughter uh, as a Christmas gift. I had done a Twin Peaks themed board book um, because I love love that. And I promise I won't spend the rest of the the interview talking about that. (laughs) But um, I'd made a little counting in colors board book for my daughter out of Twin Peaks and a whole bunch of people were like that is so cool you should make more and down the road a little bit I decided to make more but of a different book um, because I'd always wanted to make this this book book about the women of the space program because I had learned about Margaret Hamilton and um, that was really kind of the first time that I had learned about behind the scenes was I remember seeing that iconic photo of Margaret Hamilton standing with all that paper stacked up and that was the code that actually like powered the, the lunar lander and if it weren't for that they wouldn't have gotten there and everybody's always heard the story of like in the last minute you know, they took control of it and they moved it so it didn't land near this, but it landed near this thing instead. And everybody's like, oh, it's so crazy. And it's like, well, that never, they never would have <laughs> even gotten there right. if it weren't for this code. Anyways. Um, and so I, I always wanted to make that book. Um, and so when that came about, it was a similar sort of process. It was, I think this is a really cool idea. And my friend Lydia, who is a fantastic illustrator, I knew I wanted to have her do the illustration, so I kind of floated the idea past her. What do you think? Do you think this is viable? Do you think this would be fun to work on? You know, yes. You know, she thought it'd be great. And then... Um, Kind of started floating it to some other friends. They thought it would be a great idea, and then kind of started floating it to some people that we didn't know. And that's actually how I met Layla, who was a part of the book. Um, was I floated the idea past her? Do you think this would be cool? Do you think this would be fun to work on? Would you like to collaborate to help build the list of and the titles and what what we want to say about the women? The writer, book? right? Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. And so. Um, and then it it started to seem like everyone I talked to was really really interested. So it's like, all right, let's make a Kickstarter then, and let's legitimately see if people are interested, you know? Um, and so that is always the early parts of my process is really kind of that. And I, I exist in an in day job world. I exist in and around the startup community, and there's a whole lot around you know validation and early validation and stuff like that. And I think that's true about anything. Like, and sometimes that validation can just be like, well, I want it and i can throw down 50 bucks to make it happen so i was gonna say there's got to be a
0: separation right between the i want to make this because i want to make it and knowing that and like identifying that fact yeah versus like uh hey what if we put this out into the world and and like try to have it at least pay for itself Right. right 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 that kind of thing right um so it sounds like you've sort of Figured that out pretty well. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think, um, and I, I have a very strong tendency to lean onto the side of, well, I want it, so that's what I'm making. <laughs> so um, and uh, fortunately, um, I've, I've been very fortunate to have, have made enough silly things in my life that other people have wanted too, um, that we have gotten off the ground.
0: So I'm, I'm definitely a person that leans towards winging it. Just like making, you say that very hesitantly, like well, winging it scares you. <laughs> well, no, it's 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 true. I mean, it's a it's a truth about me is that I I tend to more be just in the moment. I tend to kind of just mm-hmm. m- try to make a thing that's in front of me yeah. and go with it, and that has caused a lot of various like I hesitate to use the word failures, mm-hmm. but realistically, that's yeah. probably what it is. Yeah, things aren't planned as well as they could be mm-hmm. sometimes, and it doesn't work out. Yeah. How, how do you handle when something doesn't work out? Like what, what's first of all, I guess, what's something that maybe hasn't worked out like you would have expected it to or hoped it would?
1: Oh, let's see. Which ones can I legally talk about? Um, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, oh, boy. uh, no, I've only been served one cease and desist in my life. Um, no two. Well, this is a, this is a big one. This is a big one. And it's always semi challenging to talk about, but it was the first business I like legit business I ever ran. Um, uh. I think winging it was part of what led to the ultimate demise like it wasn't like oh i made the wrong decision today and then it's over you know um it was i was when i started the company i was 25 years old and for some reason like we talked about earlier i'm very goal-oriented for some reason when i was young i was gonna start my first business like a real like this was my day job business by the time i was 25 like I'd set that goal for myself. Okay. Um, and I'd worked really, really hard to get there. I was, um, I had a day job as a designer and I would go home and work on freelance work until I fell asleep. And then I would get up and do it again. And I was teaching at that time too. I was teaching design classes and I was networking, 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 networking. Cause I was young. I had zero other responsibilities except for my student loans, you know? Um, and all I wanted to do was run my own agency and, um, Admittedly, I quit my job on a whim. Like I knew I had a big job coming up, like a, a prospective freelance gig. I had an invoice or not an invoice, an estimate out there um with I had been told a pretty high uh chance that it would in fact get signed off on and it would, you know, the budget for that project was equivalent to what I was making as an annual salary in my day job, so I'm like, "Screw it, I'm done." You know, I quit my job Monday, I sat down at my desk and found out that that project I had assumed I was getting had been killed, um, and it wasn't going to see the light of day, and now I had nothing to work on, and I went into panic mode, um, and I found a ton of work, and we stayed busy, and I slowly grew the company over the years, but um, through various states of winging it fairly early on... I just I made some not right decisions, um, decisions that ultimately wound up uh, wound up putting us in a place where we were playing from behind the eight ball, you know, trying to play catch up, like owed vendors money because no, I'm totally sure we'll make this up on the back end, and then didn't, and like when you're trying to make it up on the back end on like a project that's two hundred thousand dollars, and you don't make it up on the back end, and you owe somebody seventy five thousand dollars that you don't have because you inadvertently burnt through all of the budget on the front end of the project, like whoops, you know, and, and, and we kind of got into that situation. And it was mostly because I was still running it like I was some dude nightlining in his office, you know, over the years would just continually kind of compound and then ultimately put me in a place where um, I realized I just had just had my daughter and we would wound up in another place where a client all of a sudden couldn't pay a whole bunch of their bills, compounded on top of some of these other things that were still lagging on. And I had to make a call one day, it was like, I gave myself one more week to figure it out. It didn't happen. And on Monday morning, I'm like, we're done. Like, I can't, we can't keep doing this because, because we can't. And, and that was the end of that business that day. Um, It was just shy of eight years. Uh, But it was, it was, I attribute it to, I mean, there was a lot of things that went into it, but really at the core of it, when I really, really break it down was like some of the biggest decisions that I made were sometimes I was just winging it and making those decisions in the moment because we were totally going to figure it out, you know, and then they probably didn't get figured out. Um, well, not probably, they didn't get figured out and they just got prolonged and compounded and got worse. And by the time we got to a place where we could sort them out, it was already kind of too late in the game. And, um, I mean, I've had things like that happen on little projects and stuff like that too. Like, Oh, I picked the wrong, mug vendor and they didn't show up on time for an event but they did show up three weeks after the event now i've got 300 mugs that i don't need and you just do whatever you know yeah but i think um that is that is the the for me the biggest moment where like i've i still love winging it um but i wing it carefully now uh on the big things you know if it's who i'm gonna get stickers made through or something whatever you know like so that's what i want to
0: ask like yeah what would you now tell 25 year old jamie like what advice would you give yeah to 25 year old jamie
1: um do all of it differently no um (laughs) no (laughs) no um no i think i think what i would tell 25 year old jamie is to slow down a little bit um, and and spend a little bit more time um, thinking about the decisions that in the back of your head you know are probably bigger decisions than you should just be winging in the moment, um, and and slow down and and handle those with a little bit more care um, because uh, you just you can't wing it all. And uh, as a twenty five year old guy, I just wanted to have all the right answers all the time. Um, you don't have to have the right answer right there in the meeting or right there on the phone call. Just slow down for a minute, figure out what the right answer is, and then make that decision instead. So oh, that's great advice. <laughs> I think for probably everyone, <laughs> if past me is listening, slow it down, <laughs> slow it down, buddy.
0: Oh yeah. yeah. It's,
1: it's easy to do too, especially in, um, I feel like in today's world, everything is coming at you. It's all coming in hot, you know, as, you know, you get 15 messages simultaneously and it's on your phone, on your watch, on wherever. And it's easy to instinctively want to respond to those things. Um, I think the greatest, the greatest invention of the last year was uh, a driver mode on my phone where it yeah. just, it just shuts it off basically, <laughs> except for my music while I'm driving. Um, is I loathe that people use their phones while they drive, but also was guilty of it. And, um, and it was, uh, you know, I always told myself, oh, well, it's just this little thing, but it was, it was totally the kind of stuff where it was like quick responses to messages, you know, changing the music, stuff like that. Um, that is impossible. It feels almost impossible to break yourself of when your phone continually is lighting up, that there's something there. So I absolutely love that that exists. And, uh, it's made it, um, much, I feel like I'm much less apt to be distracted by those things now going forward, which gives me the opportunity to feel as if in my life, in some way, shape, or form, I'm slowing down. I turn Do Not Disturb on my computer on all the time when, like, I need to be focused on something. Yeah. I have the ability to like turn off all those notifications, even though I have so many notifications turned off as it is. I turn all of them off, and it, it,
0: I don't know, it's kind of nice. What are some of the distractions you've identified in your life, and like, what are things you try to actively do to to mitigate those? Again, from
1: a technology standpoint, I think um, one of the uh, the the slyly most genius things that uh, Apple has ever done is is make it so their phones start working like garbage as soon as they're about to release a new one. Um, so every day when I get home from work, my phone is almost dead, and so uh, I need to plug it in to charge it, and that's become a little bit of a, a routine that I will plug my phone in to charge it in the kitchen when I get home uh, because my kids don't want to play in the kitchen. That's the most boring place to play. And so there is my phone, and then I go on about whatever else it is that we're doing. I really try hard to instill in my kids that they don't have to pay attention to everything that happens around them all the time, that they don't have to... um, They don't have to, when they hear the bing of a phone, they don't have to worry about what it is, especially because they don't have phones. So why should they care anyways? But I find them doing things where they'll hear one of the phones go off and they'll be like, oh, mom, you you have a message. And it's like, ah, why do you care about that? You know? (laughs) So I try really hard to try to like keep my phone in silent and all those sorts of things and turn my watch into sleep mode in an effort to not be bothered by those distractions when I'm around them. Um, but also to just, I don't know with them, it's, I try to just get outside with them as much as possible because when I'm outside, I think when anyone's outside, they're, they're less apt to want to stare at something, or at least that's my belief because it's the way I operate anyways. Um, and so a lot of times when possible, we try to get outside, even, even if it's in the winter, if it's nice enough, all right, let's, why don't you get in the stroller? Let's go for a walk, you know? Um, I'll even get my daughter to hop on her little Strider bike uh, in the winter and bomb around in the snow when the sidewalks are shuffled and stuff like that. Because it's like, all right, outside, outside. Let's stay away from all of these other distractions and just try to to focus on this. And a new thing we've been doing is my daughter just learned to ride a pedal bike. um, And she... (laughs) She immediately after she figured it out, she was already bored with the sidewalk and she wanted nothing to do with that. And so she wants to ride out in the street with dad, uh-huh. um, which is great because I want her to learn to ride a bike responsibly, like a real person, ride in the street, ride the right way,
0: signal the right way, et cetera, et cetera. Which for context for our people outside of Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul, yeah, Minneapolis is very bike friendly yeah. with lots of bike lanes, lots yep. of, um, so culturally yeah, people generally ride in the streets here. Yep yep i just wanted to provide that context <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, because we have people yeah. all, all over the world that that watch
1: and, and listen, yeah so. yeah i wanted to ride uh like responsibly within our community and um uh also as a dad who is is just seeing her learn this the first time um i'm also simultaneously terrified uh, uh because i can't imagine yeah. she's 70% great at stopping at intersections. <laughs> um, and uh, so those uh, 30% of the time are just absolutely terrifying as she's rolling out into an intersection and yammering on about something that she's seeing behind her and she's not looking. <sighs> oh, no. And uh, and I have to be 100% focused in those moments. And they, they force me to... I mean, I don't know why I'd want to be monkeying with my phone in the first place while I'm doing that. But like those sorts of things... Really, really great because they force me to have to be in that moment, um, because I need to keep her safe, uh, and but also because I think um, something that's really important to me is is being able to try to have conversations with my daughter like she's she's just old enough now that she's starting to understand what's happening in the world around her and like you know all all of these things she has questions and she wants to talk about things and i try to be very deliberate about giving her honest real answers as best i can at the level she's at you know uh the other night i was we were trying to explain the supreme court and i'm like i don't know how i do that at a (laughs) five-year-old level you know um but uh, uh she gets interested in those sorts of things and so again I have to be like laser focused on riding a bike and making sure she's not going out into the street and also talking about, you know, the complex dynamics on the way in which the city chooses where to put these bike lanes in the street, you know? Yeah. she's like, how come not every street has them? Well, Well, let's talk about community input for a minute, (laughs) you know? Um, So, uh, so it's, it's, it becomes this really, really, really great moment that I think would be, um, Uh, forever marred by me turning away to answer a text message or something. Um, And so we continuously try to find those things, not because we want to not be on our phones, but because I think they're important things in our life anyways. And it's been fun to see over the last few years how it's still very easy to get pulled in in to to your device and to all the other notifications. It's designed. Um, it's designed to yeah, really it's, do that. Yeah. yeah. And so um it's been fun to see in our little world a very deliberate shift away from that. Um having having kind of provided such great results, like our ability yeah. to I, I think my daughter and I communicate relatively well for, you know, a 37-year-old, five-year-old relationship <laughs> sort of thing. I think we do all right. So uh, so I think that's that's been great. And it's another reason why, like, I don't have any interest in the Alexas and the HomePods or whatever they're calling them. Those sorts yeah. of things. Like, I don't want a device that uh, I talk to and talks to me and makes suggestions and is listening to everything that's going on to be able to provide just the right, you know, suggestion at the right moment. Like, I don't want that in my life um because i genuinely as somebody who is capable of of using their hands and walking and all of those sorts of things that i'm fortunate enough to still have the ability to use i don't need that thing in my life and so um i definitely recognize the role that they play um and and the advantage they can be for people um but i feel like in our household it's not something we want. Like, I don't want my kids speaking to some anonymous robot asking for snacks that then get kicked out of the fridge someday. Yeah. You know, I want them to, I don't know, just have
0: some sort of sense that they don't have to constantly communicate with technology. So I've been thinking about this a lot. The speaker thing, especially uh, part of the reason that I decided to start the podcast was because I know that the in-home speaker is a way that a lot of people are going to be interacting with media. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to have a thing where I could talk to people uh, through that medium, where at a medium they'd choose. Mm -hmm. The other side of this is I I keep thinking about what you just said, about me as uh, in my current state as an able-bodied person. I wonder where the benefit stops in terms of maybe it's actually more beneficial for me to stand up and go turn off the light switch across the room. Right. Right. At what point do we trade? There's the whole privacy thing, first of all, but that even aside, at what point do we trade convenience for like to a detriment? Right. I didn't even say that well, but, but at what point are we taking on convenience to a detriment of our own health, our own themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so we don't, we don't have any of the speakers yet. We don't have that stuff yet yeah. either. And, and, uh, we may at some point, I don't know, cause I might want to know how it works and I might want to know just kind of how people are interacting with it. Cause it is a big part of the future. It's, right. it's It's being adopted so quickly. Right. And if it does get people away from screens, maybe that is a positive thing. Yeah. But but uh, how it's going to interact and, and all these things, yeah. I find it very curious. And and just we haven't make it, taken that step yet. It's it, to me it, in a lot of ways, it feels like we're buying a technology just for the sake of technology, right. and because it's this cool, convenient thing, while not fully looking at the big picture of it all. Yeah, I can see a lot of use cases, but yeah. where? How do we choose? Yeah, right. So. Yeah
1: having this very similar discussion uh like two weeks ago about virtual reality the conversation we were having was around um kind of the double-edged or the two sides of the coin i won't say double-edged sword um but the the two sides of the coin in that um i feel like technology designed to create worlds that isolate us from each other um, isolate us from each other as far as far as the the actual people around you, like within near proximity to Physical you. Space. I feel. Like, those are really detrimental um, on a long-term sort of thing. Like, playing a video game for a while, sure. But um, when we start getting into the the world of, um, there's this old kind of saying that um, science fiction isn't actually fiction. We just haven't invented it yet. And so I start thinking of movies like Ready Player One, where people just put on headsets and they live their entire lives inside of this this fictional world. That seems really kind of sad to me a little bit that like we go and we live this other world because we weren't able to actually make the one with the people literally around us better right. um that seems like not the way i would want to see the technology expand but on the other side of the coin again there's all of these amazing opportunities that could happen um Quite a few years ago, I owned a Segway like robot that held an iPad on it, and it was a video conferencing machine. We had a remote employee in Portland, and we wanted, he lived here and worked in our office for years and then moved to Portland. And we wanted to try to find a way to make it make him still feel as if he was with us uh from time to time i've seen those yeah and it's called the double the uh double robotics is the name of the company and um it roved around and he could just with his tablet he could just turn it on and then with a little joystick on the screen navigate around the office and go up and talk to people and it was his little face on the screen and um it was pretty cool um But one of the big things that they were working on was um, building relationships with museums and galleries and stuff throughout the world. So like the Louvre, for example, and you could, in theory, be at home and you could travel the Louvre at night. And my first response to that was like, oh, man, you know, you you just go to the Louvre and then. I thought about it a little bit more and I was like, yeah, but not everybody can go to the Louvre, you know, like either because they can't afford it or because like it's just not accessible to them physically sort of thing. Um, There's all of these reasons. and and, And I think about that a lot with VR because on the other side of the coin, there's this whole world that could be explored by people that would otherwise not have the opportunity to go to the Louvre or to... Uh, To do or to swim in the, you know, swim in the ocean somewhere, like all of these potential experiences that could be created, that could uh, entirely change the world for somebody who was maybe otherwise confined to their house for, you know, some reason. Um, And so I think there's some really amazing things there. Uh, and I'm excited for when we get there with that technology, Yeah. but I also feel like that's never what drives the technology, which is somewhat unfortunate. It's like, Oh, what video game can we make for this? Okay. Yeah, that's cool. But also, you know, right. Like, let's make things that kind of change the
0: world for people in a better way. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, speaking about changing the world in a better way, I am familiar with a series that you run. In fact, I've got a little... I've got a little mug right here, nice that says "doing stuff" on it. Yeah. So, what are you doing? At its core, it's
1: a conversation series. We usually have three panelists and uh, sixty some odd people in our audience, and it's designed to be a relatively unstructured, informal conversation led by our panelists. Our audience participates heavily um, around a topic that, you know, as our website says. Um, the big scary monsters that so often inhibit us from doing stuff. So we talk, our first event was about failure. Our second event was about fear. Our third event um, was doubt. And our last event was expectations. I think they're all really big, challenging things that people, that stop people from, from trying new things. That stemmed from, so when I talked about that kind of big, disastrous close of my first company, um, a really uh, uh, somebody I looked up to as a mentor called me shortly after it happened, um, like the day after it happened, Um, and kind of jokingly told me I'm now part of this cool exclusive club of, of people in town who have screwed up massively several times before finding, (laughs) finding what they really should be doing. And I was like, well, why is nobody talking about that? Like, why didn't I know all of these other people that I looked up to in design school, uh, had had such tumultuous starts to their career? You know, um, you look at them and you see them doing amazing things and they're the peak of Everest in their industry sort of thing. And then you find out that they screwed up 15 times before they even got there and I was like, why don't we talk about that why does nobody know that this would feel a lot less awful today if I knew that going down this road I'm about to go down has been done by so many people so many times before almost part of the process yeah it's almost part of the process um and uh time went by and I I, I realized I'd never really held myself accountable to trying to have those kinds of conversations um and uh the the world was changing quite drastically in somewhat unforeseen ways um and i realized a big part of that i think was that um people weren't sitting together and and talking to each other as human beings um we were just on the internet segmenting ourselves off into opposing you know parties and and stuff like that and and everybody was the enemy and and you know, nobody could possibly know what the other person is going through. Um, and so, therefore, nobody can ever get along. And and um, I originally had wanted to um, start this series uh, with a good friend of mine, uh, Bobby Lee Hartman. Um, she started a, a retreat series called Lodged Out, which is about getting away and going to like old scout resort sort of things where there's no cell phone signal and you spend just days marching around in the woods doing whatever you want to do sort of thing. It's basically you just go hang out and do nothing, um, which is kind of awesome. Um, And I wanted to have a bonfire series inside of that. Like maybe every night we have three bonfires and we get people that you would like that you look up to as, as people you see as successful and have a conversation with them about all of the not successful things that have happened, you know, prior to them becoming successful or whatever. Um, and then I discovered I was going to have another child um, discovered Discovered. Uh, <laughs> Do this journey. I found out, you know, um, then we found out we were going to have another kid and I was like, all right, pause on that. And then about, well it was right after he was born. I realized that I really, I really wanted to make that series happen. And it was kind of an experiment about, one, would anybody show up? Two, could we have this vulnerable, honest, raw conversation amongst a room full of strangers led by these people that are that everybody sees as objectively successful? Um, can we have them all together talking about maybe the other side of, of things and and the reality of it and how hard it is to do this and to do that or whatever all around a really loose topic but not have it be about you know, failure in X industry, fear in
0: X job, that's you know, challenging, sort of thing, right? You know, I don't want to just sit here and talk about like, oh, let's talk about all of your accomplishments. Right, right. right. I want to hear about like you, what you so gracefully shared about your experience starting an agency and having it come to a close at some point and, yeah. and learning from that. That's to me, that's where these conversations need to be. But right. at the same time, for someone who is in the public eye, mm-hmm. for someone who is... Mm-hmm uh, trying to build something for themselves, an image, a look, it's gotta be one of the hardest things to sit down and be like, I'm pre- I, like, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's challenging, especially if you d- yourself don't feel like you publicly have it all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes it even more difficult to be vulnerable in those moments yeah. and share how things might've not gone well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so in a lot of ways, you know, you you look at um, Brene Brown and all these wonderful women doing this work around vulnerability and Mm -hmm. leading the charge around what this means and realizing that, dude, this is the ultimate strength, vulnerability and being willing to just bear our souls. So we're creating this environment for that, it sounds like. And uh, and and that's really cool.
1: Yeah. Very early in the first conversation. The first conversation was about um, failure. And um, one of our panelists was talking about the very first um, business that she'd ever started. And it took, uh, when that fell apart, she borrowed a lot of money from friends and family. And it took like 11 years to get that all sorted out and, you know, burned a lot of bridges and all this stuff. And a woman in the audience um, chimed in about how she was going, she had a, she was going through something similar where she had made a decision that was ultimately going to lead to the end of her marriage. Um, And she was going through this right now. And she's like, having gone through what you went through, where do you find the courage to pick yourself up in the morning, dust yourself off and forgive yourself so you can move forward. And like in that moment, I mean, we're, we're a room full of 70 strangers. She starts talking about my marriage is going to end. Not like it did. I've gone through it. I've come out the other side. But like in the very near future, I will be going through this very dark tunnel, so to speak, to share that with a room full of people you don't know to, you know, a, a panel of people you, you know, probably look up to and aspire to be. And, and have that conversation, I was like, this is it. This is it right here. How do I bottle this and make this continue to happen over and over again? Um, and that has really become kind of the rally cry for our our event is how do we create these moments where people are willing to kind of lay themselves out together and talk about that? Because that led to a conversation about sometimes even the worst emotions are the ones you need to have right now and they're the ones that you need to to have to get to the next set of them and it's totally okay to maybe not be able to get out of bed or to scream into a pile of dirty laundry until you just can't scream anymore you know because then you can move to the next thing um which led us you know into other people in the audience asking asking about you know well then how do you you know stop doing something when you know when you quit doing something, it's perceived as a failure and that's a negative thing. And like, how can you ever start something new if you, if quitting is bad, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was this really, it really intense sort of conversation that happened. Like not in a, like people in each other's face sort of intense, but like this really vulnerable, raw sort of moment that, that we, we talked through with a room full of people that didn't know each other. And it was, it was really, really cool. And we've had that at every single one of our events. We've always had this very distinct moment where, um, somebody in the audience has started asking a question and it's like, oh boy, we're about to go here. You know? <laughs> it's, happen- um, it's happening. And it's it's always so great to see it happen because I think it's the kind of things that we're taught to be afraid to talk about or to uh, be ashamed to talk about. Stigma around it. And yeah. and I think one of the key things that we do um, on this on this theme of, of breaking the Twitch sort of thing, one of the things that I say at the beginning is is I ask everybody to turn their phones off. Um, because it's, it's not a conference that's worth live tweeting, you know? Um, and if you're live tweeting this thing, you're missing part of the conversation. Uh, you're missing maybe hearing something in a way that, that changes maybe the way you think about something or, or applies to something that's going on in your life. Um, and so for us, it's very important to, to have our devices be away. like even I turned mine off, even though I got to keep track of the time. Like I turn, turn mine off because I don't want to get interrupted in the middle of this thing. I don't want to be distracted from what our panelists are saying. And um, we've gotten a lot of feedback from people that have said that that they think that's really cool. That we're telling people, just turn it all off and just be here for like an hour. It's not hard to be somewhere for an hour and just be focused on that. And so uh, it's been a fun experience. What's something that you're
0: excited about and looking
1: forward to right now? On the same topic, um, we've got a couple more doing stuff's coming up in the coming months. Um, It started as this, like I said, this little experiment that we'd see if anyone would come to, to, it's been almost two years since we announced our very first one. We announced our first one in October of 2016. We now have ones loosely planned out into 2019, um, into like midway of 2019, um, with the possibility of a fall 2019 one starting to trickle in. And it's like, this little thing that we were gonna see if anybody would even show up to is all of a sudden a year out in the planning phases, which is is kind of cool. And the, and then my daughter's probably starting kindergarten in the fall, so that's a fun, exciting, scary sort of thing. And how do I, you know, I've been my wife and i've been responsible for raising her to this point like uh, can we put her into a school system and have her be a decent respectful human being uh, did we do okay fingers crossed you know so yeah. it's kind of a terrifying time it's all it's all on you it so, is it is it's yeah. literally if she if she gets kicked out of school on day one that's it i'm done hang it up <laughs> <just> so
0: tie up the shoes i yep. don't know if that's the yep. right expression but yep. uh yeah all right jamie so right over there behind you is a glass vessel. Okay. And in that vessel okay. are questions, initially drawn from, from audience and Amy and myself, and then previous guests. Okay. So I'm gonna have you grab that vessel. All right. I'm, I don't know why I'm calling it a vessel all of a sudden, but uh,
1: it's a good word. It's a good word. Let's
0: let's have you grab that, and you don't have to pull from the top, but you need to pull one of these questions. Pull from the bottom. Yeah. So so go with whatever feels. Good. Yep. You can dump them out. I Go like with whatever one. feels good.
1: Got to put the rest back. Got to put the okay. rest back. Right. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: just one. And uh, you're going to do your best to answer that question, should right. you so choose. All right. Some paper sounds here. This is legit.
1: Ooh, who or what has been your greatest mentor or teacher? I would say the word failure has probably been one of my greatest mentors over the years, which is a weird sort of thing to say. Like I, I, they were failures, but I don't think they, like I don't always connotate them with like negative failures sort of things. And I think in each one of them, I have learned a tremendous amount about myself and a tremendous amount about the kind of person I want to be um, and the kind of person I want to be, the kind of person I currently am and maybe where I go to become that kind of person. And they've all been very interesting and distinct sort of sort of moments um that i think have have oftentimes led me in in ways i wasn't expecting to go um and so i would say i would say yeah i would say failure uh as a word has been the thing that has has driven me the most so
0: well well you're a designer by trade so i know you got stuff online where can people uh where can people find you and your projects in in brief here what what are some Um, places yeah i think uh i think just
1: go to jamieerickson.com um i'll link to that
0: in the show notes and the description of all the places this will be fun yeah that's
1: kind of a mass accumulation of all the weird wild stuff i've been up to over the years um so yeah that's a good place to
0: start fantastic well jamie thanks again for coming in having this conversation sharing your perspective on these things It was great to have you yeah thanks for having me it's been great As always, I'd love to share one of the things that really stuck with me through this interview. But first, as you probably know, reviews are absolutely essential to getting the word out about podcasts like this one. So if you have a moment and you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. One of the things that really stuck with me from this conversation with Jamie was simply the concept of failure as growth. Here's the reality of the situation, and this is as I have experienced it as well. If you are willing to put yourself out there, if you are willing to make something and put it out into the world for others to perceive, there is a high chance that at some point you're going to fail at something. And if failure is an inevitability of creating and doing work we love and putting things out into the world, then Why is it something that we fear? Why is it something that we should be ashamed of? In my very straightforward opinion, it is not. Because if you're never failing at anything, if everything goes perfectly according to plan and you just keep winning, 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 are you really learning and growing from those experiences? Are you pushing yourself to do your best work? Are you taking risks that might have incredibly high rewards. There's a lot of stuff to think about when it comes to this idea of failure and how there's a big difference between having a failure or experiencing failure and being a failure. You can never be a failure as long as you continue trying, you continue growing, you continue making things that matter to you. And whatever that may be, either putting it out into the world or simply doing something just because you love it. So it's definitely, I think, a new era in terms of embracing failure as simply part of the process. Failure is just something we come across inevitably as we do work that we love, as we try for things that we might not be able to achieve. So as long as it's a part of the process, I say failure is great. For those of you listening to this episode in your favorite podcast player, I would highly encourage you to subscribe so you get future episodes of the podcast right in your feed. As well, if you're interested in seeing full videos of these interviews along with highlight clips and other videos I create, you can do so by subscribing on YouTube at youtube.com slash the Twitch. I hope you have a fantastic week and I'll see you in the next episode.